it's always interesting explaining our go-to-market strategy to people outside of the company because we did things a bit a bit backwards in that we localized the product into 100 languages uh, and then kind of said, all right, <laughs> where do we want to dive more deeply? So that's really how it went for us, I suppose, a bit more of a, a top-down approach rather than bottom-up. So we were available in over 100 languages as of yeah, 2017, early 2018. And that was really at the behest of, of Melanie, who said, you know, I want to be in, I want Canva to be in as many languages as Microsoft Word is, is available in. Um, so I quickly wow. Googled, how many languages is, is that? But it was also very much um, coming from a place of accessibility for us. You know, Canva is working on a ton of accessibility initiatives and has been for a while. But I, I would say that localization was probably our first really massive accessibility initiative and in that we really wanted to make Canva available for anybody to use in their native language. Welcome to the International Expansion Podcast. My name is Ramsey Pryor, and I spent the past five years taking one of Silicon Valley's fastest growing startups into new markets all around the world as head of international expansion and sales. Tech companies are able to expand overseas faster than ever before, but there's quite a lot that goes into getting it right, and each new market has its own unique and fascinating set of quirks and challenges. The best way to prepare is to learn from people who have been there before. So I started this podcast to gather the best practices from tech's most admired startups. We cover their successes and the things they got right, as well as their mistakes and learnings, all so that you can benefit from their hindsight as you take your company global. Thanks for listening. And if you or your company is looking for guidance on your expansion journey, or if you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please visit portofentrypartners.com and send us a note. Welcome to another episode of the International Expansion Podcast. Today, I'm really happy to have Rachel Carruthers as my guest. Rachel is head of internationalization and localization at Canva. And Canva, of course, is an online design and publishing tool with a mission to empower everyone in the world to design anything and publish anywhere. Since it was founded in 2013, Canva has grown into a unicorn and one of Australia's most famous tech companies. Rachel's been at Canva for over four and a half years, so she's overseen an incredible period of international growth as Canva now reaches over 60 million MAU in 190 countries and in over 100 languages. Rachel is a member of the International Mastermind Network, and she's a Bay Area native that is now living and working in Australia. So we share a lot of common interests and connections, and I've been looking forward to having Rachel as a guest for a long time. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this as well. Awesome. Well, we have lots to talk about. And before we dive into the nitty-gritty of your work and expertise, I'd like to start by understanding a little bit more about what motivates you and has spurred you to move to a new country and to focus your career on localization. I know that from our previous chats that you grew up here in the Bay Area and the Bay Area obviously has a lot of great perks, weather, lots of exciting tech jobs. So I'm curious to know what sparked your interest in localization and led you to spend the last five plus years of your life overseas. Yes. So what sparked my interest in localization to begin with was I had studied in my undergrad um, language studies. That, that was my, that's what my degree was in. And so the degree itself was comprised of half kind of solid esoteric linguistics and half studying languages, specifically French and Spanish, and just really loved kind of the pulling apart of languages, you know, and really saw how linguistics was almost the math of languages. And I just got really excited about it and nerded out about it. And I think what I loved the most about the degree was the emphasis around sociolinguistics as well, which I didn't realize at the time, but was probably my first introduction into localization and what localization really is. Um, but I left my degree and promptly went into law, as you do, and became a paralegal for a few years. And I was in that role when a friend from um, uni reached out to say that his team, uh, which were we localized at the time, were looking for localization project managers and to see if I was interested because he knew that I had studied languages in my in my undergrad. 
And that's how I got started, actually. Um, I said, well, what's localization? And I Googled it like everybody else who probably <laughs> first hears about localization for the first time. And uh, yeah, I thought it was was really interesting. So I got my start there and was working with We Localize for about four and a half years. And the reason I left the Bay Area was I was looking to do a master's degree and actually widen <laughs> widen my skill set outside of just linguistics because we know it can be quite a niche area as well. And um, I had never lived abroad. I didn't do the the year abroad thing in my undergrad and was always keen to give that a shot. And I applied to several different master's programs that were centered around more just a broader media discipline, digital media, more, more or less. And I actually applied to several different universities around the world, a, a few in England, a few in uh, the Netherlands, two here in Sydney, actually. And it came down to what was... The, which course had the best coursework that I was interested in. University of Sydney was it. And so that's why I moved to Sydney, frankly. It was, I almost went to University of Amsterdam, actually. It was pretty much a coin toss, which is a strange thing to think about how different my life could be. Bit of a sliding doors thing, I suppose. But mm-hmm. yeah, so uh, I, and when I came here and started my master's degree, I just I fell in love with Australia. It... Um, Living in Sydney and living on the east coast of Australia is kind of cheating for a Californian when you're saying that you're moving abroad because it's basically just California but inverted <laughs> and upside down. And, you know, it, it's there are so many similarities. It was probably hard for me not to fall in love with it. And did my master's degree, really loved it, ended up staying um, or ended up getting a job at a digital media agency for about four months and just doing project management work there when I was approached by one of the recruiters at Canva in 2017 who said, we're looking for somebody to build out our localization program. And I said, no, uh, because I, I'm looking to get out of localization. I'm looking to kind of broaden my horizons a bit. And um, mm. uh, no, thank you. And, you know, um, and also tech. I've been working in tech and I've been surrounded by tech and you know, as a Bay Area native, have a bit of a tempestuous relationship with the tech world in and of itself. And, you know, said, said no. And what happened is, you know, he, he sent over, we, we have uh, candidates um, kind of at all levels and on all disciplines at Canva do take-home challenges as part of the recruitment process. And he sent me the take-home challenge and it sat on my proverbial desk for about a few weeks. And then he followed up about it and I said, oh, all right, I'll take a look and I'll just see what it is even. And I basically just worked on it through the night. I, you know, it was really engaging. It was basically like, how would you tear down Canva and rebuild it for, you know, better international engagement or something like that. And I just was really passionate about it and nerding out over it and kind of, you know, at some point at like 2am when I was working on it, I was like, I guess I really do want to do this. It's pretty Mm -hmm. exciting. Um, and yeah, started, started from there. It was, um, it's, Again, it's definitely been one of those very long, drawn-out sliding door um, things for me. But uh, yeah, starting starting a new life in, in a different country um, has been it's it was an interesting experience. It's also just been an interesting experience as an American going abroad in the last five years. Everything that's been happening in America and being in a place outside of America with people who are not American going, "What's going on over there?" I'm like, "I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> like, it's kind of crazy." So it's it's been a bit of a wild ride, but um, I definitely I see my future here for sure. Very cool. I, I was thinking sliding doors too when you said that about Amsterdam, but mm. it seems like this was destined to happen. It c- keeps coming at you and won't go away until you uh, complete that <laughs> take home assignment. And uh, sounds like things were meant to be. So thanks for taking us back through that. The, one of the reasons I was really excited to speak with you is because a lot of the people that I talk to on this podcast or just generally are coming from the perspective of a U.S. company that is expanding into Europe or into Asia or Latin America. So it's from this starting point and this perspective. And you have the benefit of having the U.S. perspective, but also having been part of an expansion story that started in Australia. So I imagine the thought process might have been a little bit different starting from that part of the world. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. When you guys, and you weren't there from the very beginning, but you know, I'd love to pick your brain and just understand, how do you think expansion 
and how that's unfolded for Canva has been different starting from Australia? Yeah, that's such a great question. For Canva specifically, and knowing how hard Melanie and Cliff, two of our co-founders, work to even just get the attention and the funding from a lot of from a lot of in investors not being in the Bay Area and being in Australia, that was the number one reason they got knocked back, you know, literally hundreds of times and had many offers about, you know, if you if you this is a great product, we think it'll go really far, we'd love to invest but you're going to need the support of other founders and other networks. Um, you can only do that if you relocate to the Bay Area. And they were completely adamant about not doing that. So that, I mean, was Canva's first real experience, or I suppose, wall. I don't know, I know not being a wall, clearly, but a challenge, I suppose. And I think that there is, again, coming from the uh, startup space in the Bay Area, we may not think of it when you're in it, but it actually is a rather kind... It, I mean, we know it's a bubble, right? But it is a bit insular um, in Silicon Valley. And, you know, everybody knows who all the investors are and everybody's in some sort of series. And, like, that's just what people's train chat is. And it's just not... It's just not here, you know? Um, and, and certainly wasn't, gosh, seven, eight odd years ago, you know, that the startup scene, aside from Atlassian, of course, <laughs> um, which is you know you can't you can't talk about the startup scene here without mentioning it. Atlassian, you know, it was it was very quiet. The, the tech space consisted of Google offices, some Uber offices, stuff like that. Well established, no longer startup but tech spaces. So it was a bit you know it's a bit of a strange. It was a bit of a strange thing to kind of grow up, if you will, as as a company or even in the last several years not having that kind of larger kind of tech environment around you. However, that's completely changed. One of our main investors, one of our kind of key investors, if you will, Blackbird um, VC, they're you know located in, in Sydney as well and based here. They've grown um, very much and you know they're definitely one of the, well, needless to say, one of the champions of, of startups and, and that tech space. But so much has burgeoned over the last, I think, four years. We've got companies like Safety Culture. Culture Amp is a huge one as well. And so that, that community is really starting to grow. Um, so it, it's been really interesting to kind of be on the forefront of that. And it's only going to grow, you know, further. And when it comes to localization, you know, that's that's been a really interesting one because, again, what we are trying to do with localization is so incredibly ambitious. And not only is it hard to find, you know, localization teams in a text in a in a in a space where there's not too much tech, um, but to kind of find one and, and, and try to learn from folks who are trying to go at the scale that we're that we're going at it is pretty difficult. So, you know, we definitely still look to the Spotify's, the Netflix's as to what our program can look like and what the reality of, you know, what the reality is that we can build. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's a bit of a, it, it forces us to kind of look outside and, and consider what's possible um, and to look to those peers who may not be in Australia, but, you know, where we want to get to. Very cool. I've gotten to spend a little bit of time in the startup community over in Sydney through my last job. And so I saw a lot of really interested and eager participants. You know, I think maybe mm -hmm. in the Bay Area, people get a little bit jaded or just used to all the events. But I felt like there was really good energy there. And I'm glad to see that that's growing. But you guys probably had to pioneer a lot of stuff. And things I imagine were a lot harder from hiring to just finding near peers to network with as you grew. And I know that today, you guys have big offices in... Sydney, of course, and also in Beijing and in Manila. And I'm, I'd be very curious to understand how did those three become your first three big offices? You know, what was the thought that went into that? And to the extent that you can, would love to know how does your expansion path, how do you see it unfolding? If it started in Australia, then you opened up offices in Beijing and Manila. You know, where, where do you see expansion pathways? So obviously, yeah, the, the offices in Sydney, I think where our first office was in something like 2013. And at the time, or maybe even more like 2014, at the time, 
and I hope I'm not butchering this because I wasn't at the company at the time. So I hope I have my facts right. We were working quite closely with a few foundations in Manila as a kind of community projects. We had also, I think, established our first like customer happiness team over there as well. But we ended up working closely with a few foundations for community change. And I can't remember the name of them. I feel awful. Um, but what happened was that we were working quite closely with them and basically our offices and our needs were growing. And there was, there was, you know, there were so many great people that were involved in these foundations that we said, well, you know, you're, you're great program managers, you're great leaders, you know, as we're kind of growing our presence in Manila, do you want to help shape this Manila presence? And that's basically what's happened. You know, they've really kind of become so much of the heart and soul of, of Canva Manila. We've got now a ton of great designers. A lot of our designers are in Manila. So a lot of the templates that people use, all of the great creativity um, coming out of there. You know, now we've got engineers, we've got content marketers. It's a whole suite of, you know, talent that really came, that that's really built out of um, Manila today. But it was more, yeah, it was more of kind of this circumstance and right place, right time. And it was a natural fit, you know. Uh, there's uh, Australia in general has some pretty strong ties to the Philippines. There's a lot of, you know, immigration both ways. So a pretty natural fit. And then when it came to Beijing, we knew that creating... So Canva, Canva for China, uh, Canva.cn as opposed to Canva.com, is actually built on a different tech stack. And we knew that that was going to be a requirement due to the Great Firewall and a lot of different you know, government compliance requirements and all of these kind of product factors. So it, it became a thing where we said, look, in order to kind of be able to work in China, we have to be in China. You know, the product needs to be built for China. It needs to be built in China. We're also going to have some product divergence for China in that we're going to need to have different features available, obviously, for a Chinese audience than we would for a global audience. Uh, so the need just became uninevitable, frankly. Um, there was no way, I think, that we could have tried to do everything that we needed to do from China from Sydney. just wouldn't have worked. So that was really the main reason for setting up offices there. And, um, you know, since then, we've set up um, our Austin office in, in Texas, and uh, we've got a lot of our sales enablement team there as well. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, again, Texas or the Austin office isn't now exclusively sales enablement, but that's kind of the, where the genesis of the office came from. So in that way, you know, it's kind of what needs are these these offices meeting, you know, these um, locations meeting, what kind of function are they supporting? Most, and then we start there and generally end up building on top of that. And as such, you know, we're looking now at expanding into different regions, looking at Europe, looking at Latin America for, for different reasons. You know, in Europe, we have to consider data storage, you know, user security, the, the laws around GDPR are quite different as well about how you store user data. Latin America, you know, is a, is a huge region for us. Um, something like content creation and our contributors programs, you know, folks who are doing things like contributing to the photo library or design elements, things like this. There's a rich, rich community for us in Latin America. And so if we can be closer to them, help grow that, that community, then all the better. So those are, yeah, those are probably the two regions we're looking at next to Target. Very cool. This episode is brought to you by Globalization Partners. Many people assume that in order to enter a new country, you have to set up a new entity for your company, which can mean engaging in months of filings, years of investment obligations, legal fees, and a boatload of aspirin for all those headaches. That's a really heavy burden, especially if you're only hiring a few employees or if you're still testing a particular market. Globalization Partners invented a better way of hiring talent in other countries in 2012 that allows you to focus on hiring the talent you need and growing your company while they take care of the employment details. They provide locally compliant employee contracts, manage payroll, pensions, benefits, and a lot more as part of the package. And they cover 187 countries and 180 currencies. They offer all of this through their proprietary technology platform and provide experts you can call on when tricky situations come up anywhere in the world. And take it from me, these situations do come up frequently, and when they do, you want the most experienced people and the best technology behind you. 
For more information, visit globalizationpartners.com and choose the country you'd like to learn more about. So, Rachel, your title is Head of Internationalization and Localization. I've had other people on the podcast define those terms in ways that I thought were really helpful. But I'd love to get your definition of what those two words mean, international, uh, internationalization and localization, and maybe just describe what your job looks like day to day. Yes. So with internationalization and localization, you know, obviously there's, there's a ton of overlap. In its most traditional sense, I think internationalization means preparing you know, code um, or a product for localization down the line. And we do have an internationalization team within Global Services, which is the group that I lead. And they're um, you know, a team of four engineers who do things like maintain our content ingestion pipeline, which is basically just you know, Canva code, keeping the product localized and the lights on. And um, they ensure that you know, we, we have best practices going for things like ICU parameters and just making the code localization friendly. They also work on integration tests and things like translator tools, visual context for translators, so that ultimately they can do their best work again down the line in localization. But outside of that more traditional definition, I, I really see internationalization as any way that we're prepping the product for localization down the line. And often that means reimagining uh, what what Canvas products look like sometimes for different audiences or what we need to do to certain parts of the product to make them more localization friendly. So an example of that would be looking at how our search and discoverability functionality works on the platform. You know, how do we take into account things like multilingualism and the realities of, of a global audience when they're looking for certain things you know, within the platform rather than just like okay, you type in one thing, you get a Google translated version of something, you know? Um, so really just anything that we need to do to prep Canva for being a global product is, is the way I see internationalization. And then localization, again, um, as many of your listeners are pretty well aware, it's, it's, it's localizing a product, it's changing a product to adapt it for a local audience based on any sort of specific cultural expectations, language expectations, anything like that. And, you know, the extent to which we localize our products at Canva will vary from market to market. In some cases, it's a basic, more of a basic translation job. And in some cases, it's, again, a a reimagining of a product or, like I mentioned with China, you needing to build it on a completely different stack, uh, tech stack, in order for it to be a viable product in, in the audience. So it's really about that local adaptation and whatever that may, whatever that may take. In, in the old days when software tech companies wanted to put their product out into the world, they would have to kind of go market by market and turn things on. But today, a lot of products get launched and they're kind of available for anyone who can find the product, You know, whether it's in an app store or out there on the internet. But then companies are in a catch-up position in a way where they have to then go and figure out which markets that they're already sort of in that they want to localize specifically for or put salespeople on the ground and that sort of thing. Is that fair to say how Canva evolved in that you know you launched an initial product, you probably had some organic uptake in lots of different places, and then you had to figure out where do you want to go and make the experience localized, or did it happen in a different way? Um, yeah, it's always interesting explaining our go-to-market strategy to people outside of the company because we did things a bit a bit backwards in that we localized the product into 100 languages uh, and then kind of said, all right, <laughs> where do we want to dive more deeply? So that's really how it went for us, I suppose, a bit more of a, a top-down approach rather than bottom-up. So we were available in over 100 languages as of yeah, 2017, early 2018. And that was really at the behest of, of Melanie, who said, you know, I want to be in, I want Canva to be in as many languages as Microsoft Word is, is available in. Um, so I quickly wow. Googled how many languages is, is that? 
But it was also very much um, coming from a place of accessibility for us. You know, Canva is working on a ton of accessibility initiatives and has been for a while. But I I would say that localization was probably our first really massive accessibility initiative and that we really wanted to make Canva available for anybody to use in their native language, which, you know, we're then staring down the barrel of thousands and thousands of languages, actually. So we were pretty conservative in our approach when you look at it, when you look at it like that. And so now we're definitely, and have been for a while, but now we're definitely in a place where we're saying, okay, if you take a, a country like France or let's say Brazil, how do we kind of button down our go-to-market approach in a specific market outside of just having the platform localized? Again, do we need to reshape or refine or reimagine the product in any specific way for this market? You know, what are the um, kind of marketing channels that we want to be sure that we target? What does our presence need to look like? What does our brand need to look like? These are all things that we definitely are working through today. um, And it's been a really um, exciting challenge and, and opportunity for all of us. That is really interesting. I've never heard of a company approaching it all at once like that and kind of upfront. That's that's really, really cool. And I like the fact that that was tied to the goals around accessibility. Mm. How did you even logistically go live in 100 languages in that amount of time? That just seems like a Herculean effort. Can you <laughs> talk a little bit about how how you did that? How many people... How long? You know, anything you can share there? Yeah. So when I started in March of 2017, full credit to Georgia Feidler and three engineers who gave their beautiful time to basically setting up the infrastructure <laughs> that we use today. That was in place when I started. So I, I absolutely can't take credit. They were, I think, at about 20 to 25 languages when I started. And none of them have come out of the the localization industry either. So it was Georgia who was kind of just working on general product growth and Sam and Toby and uh, Brendan, who were, you know, front-end and back-end engineers who could help with the integration. We ended up going uh, with Smartling with our TMS, and they really set up that pipeline that I mentioned before. And then I I was brought in to kind of, yeah, build out the program and say, okay, how do we scale this? How do we get to 100 and do it in... I did it in about nine months. And then how do we keep that engine going, (laughs) which is Mm -hmm. the other piece as well. And so really what was important, so it was, it was me, Georgia was helping out, you know, a bit and then she ended up moving on to other things probably maybe three months after I started. And I got some help from wonderful teammates, Ina and Hitomi, who were, um, who are still based in Manila They'd come from different areas of the company and uh, were looking for a new challenge. So I had two amazing women on my team, but they had no localization experience either. So it was the three of us really working this out, which makes me, and you know, reflecting on it even more proud. And what really worked for us was making sure that Smartling as our TMS was doing a lot of the heavy lifting for us when it came to project management. So I actually went in and, you know, in Smartling, much like any other TMS, as you can configure workflows and automations and you know things that will automatically kick off to vendors, things that will automatically check for content that's available for translation, all of that. So went into Smartling, redid all the workflows, um, which was a, a, a massive undertaking. That was a, a manual task. We literally had to kind of drag and drop a ton of strings into new workflows, which anybody who's kind of been in like the really nitty gritty of a TMS. There's no way to do this other than pick and drop somewhere else. We did that for several <laughs> weeks. But once we got that underway, it was a complete game changer. And so we we really did leverage the TMS as that project management because it, it <laughs> there was no way that we were going to be sending, you know, a hundred emails to different <laughs> different translators. And, uh, you know, another piece that was huge for us was working with the right agencies as well. Localization agencies, LSPs, who had broad coverage and good quality in their language offerings. So again, that we're not working with a hundred different individual vendors, of course, but rather several larger agencies who can who can deal with that project management overhead. So that was definitely key as well. And then since then, it's it's been working really closely with the engineering teams, our infrastructure teams, as we moved from. I think when I started, it was either weekly, maybe, no, I think it was weekly and then moved to twice weekly and now daily release cycles, basically, and making sure that um, our release cycles and all the, you know, 
all of the piping, if you will, that, that goes with it, it, it's just imperative that it speaks well with our localization program. Like there's just basic, it's a non-option for basically anything that we do with regards to engineering to not jive with making sure that we can run a localization program smoothly. It's just part and parcel with how, you know, um, everything is set up these days. And, you know, we've grown massively as a team now, which supports different areas of the program as far as marketing and then product, of course, as I mentioned, internationalization um, earlier on as well. So that's, that's really what the program looks like today is now not so much the ins and outs of keeping the engine running. Um, it's also how are we supporting different functions within the business with the best practices, best localization practices that we can as well. Mm-hmm. And once you have a hundred languages, it seems like that would it'd be very easy for problems to kind of permutate, or you know, if you're fit for complexity to multiply when you have that many mm-hmm. languages. Mm-hmm. What are some of the best practices to make sure that you don't have to do things a hundred times? You're not making design decisions or content decisions that would then need a hundred different tweaks. <laughs> have you any any best practices you can share there, or maybe the thinking that goes behind it to make sure that you don't have, that you, know, you can sort of do it once and it works as you would expect? Um, I would love to say that that's just how it works all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, a lot of what we do is. You know, there's a lot of collaboration and coordination with different functions around the business, obviously engineering, as I mentioned, but with product designers, for example. So with 100 languages, you're going to have truncation, for example, somewhere, you know, in the product, you're going to have um, UI that doesn't fit. You're going to have UI mm-hmm. that's oddly shaped. You're going to have strings that run over, double wrap, all the things. And so for an example is that we work with the um, the product designers and we have releases completed in what we call PS Accent, uh, which is essentially just it's dummy text effectively that adds a bunch of, a bunch of characters and spaces to make strings, I think it's 30% longer. So that, you know, if, if a piece of UI is developed with PS Accent, the hope is that the majority of our languages will fit once they expand after translation from English. So that's that's been a huge help. Making sure that con- that our product um, UI is also responsive because, you know, the opposite of needing to expand by 30% is when you take, you know, CJK languages and they might, you know, it might only be three or four characters wide and, you know, the button is designed for a whole long English string. And so then you have something that looks very odd as well. So we, you know, the, the opposite is making sure that things will be responsive and shrink down to the appropriate size too. There are lots of things that are um, being developed now that allow for things like transcreation within the product. So basically, you know, if we have a, a dialogue um, box pop up, let's say it's an upsell dialogue, you know, for free users, having them you know, trying to convert them to pro, the the team that works on the the pro growth side of, of things have you know rebuilt that service so that we can adapt those upsell dialogues and add in different texts that might be more appropriate when speaking to a LATAM audience and what they're looking to get out of Canva. And we can also do things like change out the creative collateral so we can you know make more locally friendly design decisions when we're speaking to an audience. So things like that, basically asking the questions up front, how, where do we need to be able to go? Like what are the, what's the kind of utopia state of, of this feature or this product within Canva and, and how can we serve our audience best? And being able to answer that question up front then allows us to work with the product owners to say, you know, here are some ideas for the way we might be able to reshape or rebuild this. And I just think, being fortunate enough to have these conversations with a lot of the product owners because localization is is such a pillar of what what we do at Canva and what Canva stands for. You know, we're, our our team. I've always said we're we're so lucky in that it's been such a priority of the founders to to really localize the product because that means the rest of the company gets behind whatever it is that we kind of need to do in order to empower localization. So that's been wonderful for sure. That's so cool, and most tech companies when they want to start expanding into new markets and to localize the experience, have to figure out which ones to focus on and they need signals to tell them whether the amount of 
localization that they've done is sufficient? And do people love it? How does Canva get signals to know that, you know, yes, you've done a good job in this market, Mm -hmm. users love it, or you have more work to do? How do you get those signals? Yeah, that's a great question. At a very basic level, globally, what we look at is market penetration rate. So how, you know, we consider the the TAM or the total addressable market, basically anybody with an internet connection, we have very, very broad standards. Um, anyone with an internet connection in, in a market. So then we look at what is the market penetration rate of, of the TAM. But more specifically with localization, that's still something that we're working on, to be honest, um, because you may have something like great product market fit and people will adopt your product. And it may not have to do with how well your product is localized, to be honest. Different markets have different sensitivities as well when it comes to localization of a product. Some markets absolutely will reject it if your product seems you know, like it's completely foreign. Um, others don't really mind at all. So you know, trying to calibrate what role localization has in the success of a market is definitely something we're still trying to figure out. At the moment, we are um, doing some testing, some unmoderated user testing, having users go through um, kind of our, our product funnel and understanding the first you know, 20 minutes of their experience with Canva as a new user. And we're also working with a few partners now to kind of do like a bottom-up local insights report where, again, they're going through the same funnel, but these are specialists, uh, localization specialists, who are saying, you know, here's how other competitors are making themselves known in the market. Here's some best practices when it comes to localization of your product in the market. Here's where you might be missing the mark on something like quality, or here's something that, you know, our users feel like you're doing quite well. So I don't know if it's a perfect science, frankly, but we basically have a checklist of the things that we know that we need to have localized and localized well in the market. And then from there, you know, it's just kind of constantly calibrating um, based on user feedback, really, and it's something that we kind of just do in a continuous fashion to understand, yeah, if, if we're if we're hitting the mark, really. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Canva would be one a great example of a company that has been very product-driven in mm, its growth. Yeah. Do you think that's fair to say? And at some point, the marketing and the go-to-market team probably has to come into the picture, even if you're super product-driven, to maximize awareness and build a brand in each of these regions. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like or maybe what does it mean to launch or to go into a new region, even though your product might be available out there? What does it mean to like go in sure. with rigor? Yes, so that is really, like you said, where our marketing teams come in, right? So definitely having a a digital marketing presence, you know, our performance marketing channels, we've got always on presence with a lot of our digital marketing channels, things like SEO as well. Um, But to really start going in is when we start targeting campaigns according to specific Opportunities in the market, you know, tailoring our marketing to be more mobile driven or web based, depending on what the population of the market looks like there and what the what the kind of user demographic breakdown is. And then really, really entering a market now is also investing in, um, you know, above the line out of home spend. So that's stuff that we've been doing in the U.S. and Australia. Actually, I think the U.S., Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and I believe the U.K. So kind of predominantly English-speaking markets and really trying to look at what our media buying strategy is there and and what works well and then taking it into different markets now as well, trying to copy that blueprint, you know, take looking at things like podcasts and and different channels that we hadn't, you know, explored um, before last year. Again, understanding what works, kind of testing out our creative as well. Um, and our creative strategy on those different channels and then being able to localize that into new markets as well. So I think, you know, once we once we create a much more localized brand presence and kind of stepping away from the blueprint, once we've really worked out what resonates best, that's how we know that we've, we've really kind of executed our, our go-to-market plan. You mentioned that some regions are more tolerant than others in terms of how much localization they expect or will or lack of localization they'll tolerate. Mm. Um, in your experience, which are the markets that are t- what you would consider to be tolerant of less localization? Which ones are very intolerant and require the greatest amount of localization? 
In my experience with Canva specifically, I have found that actually Brazil, although we are pretty well localized into Brazil at this point, is, is a huge one. I think, you know, there was such product, like good product market fit there um, as Brazil has a massive social media using population. I think it's mm-hmm. something like people spend upwards of eight to nine hours either on their phone or on social media. I actually can't remember what stuff it is, so probably don't want to include it. There's uh, People are constantly on <laughs> social media and, and Canva is a natural fit for them to be able to create you know, beautiful looking graphics um, and creative for their socials to share with friends, to share with family. Um, we saw that also in Indonesia. Indonesia is a very interesting one because we have their product loca- localized into Bahasa, Indonesia. However, a, a good percentage of our users in Indonesia use Canva in English. And uh, hmm. Indonesia is, I think, our third largest market at the moment. So, you know, a, a perfect kind of case sample in which localization, at least, you know, when it comes to product UI, isn't as isn't as important. The product market fit is what's what's huge there. And in Indonesia and a lot of other Southeast Asian countries as well, you know, e-commerce is, is really booming. And you've got people who are running their, you know, businesses from their phones and um, need quick, easy free way to be able to design for their businesses and have this these marketing collateral pieces so that those are kind of two examples i think where you know localization hasn't been as critical i think japan probably on the other end of that spectrum china most definitely Mm -hmm. they are i think it it comes to at least you know in japan i know there's definitely um, a language barrier when it comes to um to english there's a very small percent of people who I think speak English natively. And so just, you know, kind of breaking that down, you know, making sure that people can literally understand the product is pretty huge, but also representation through the product as well, which is something that we're working on, making sure that we have content in the library that represents, you know, Japanese culture, Japanese families, Japanese cities, you know. That, that look and feel of the product is something that we have gotten feedback on, you know, that uh, that we're working to improve. If people are making a birthday card or let's say that they're, you know, well, yeah, no, let's say they're making a birthday card uh, and, you know, they want to be able to use something that has beautiful scripts um, or playful scripts, things like that. You know, if we only have a limited number of Japanese fonts and they're all kind of the equivalent of, no-toe sans or just, you know, um, sans serif and that's it. Plain font. Plain font. You know, it's not a very fun birthday card, is it, right? And so you've really (laughs) got to take into account what the design components of of a market are too and and how localization plays into that. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I I learned how the visual style of even giving a sales presentation is the expectations are quite different in every market. And Things like how many images are on one page is quite different. So I imagine being a design product, you guys have had to take a lot of things into consideration beyond just language, but more visual aspects. Curious to know, what are some of the more surprising things that you've learned about localizing through your experience at Canva? What markets or examples like the ones that you gave really opened your eyes to how different expectations are around the world? I mean, I definitely think that that font example is a huge one, actually. We did a market landscaping research piece with an agency of ours on Saudi Arabia. And one of the pieces of feedback that we got was that our free font library was incredibly underwhelming. Um, we had some really great fonts, but they were all paid fonts. And, you know, we sat back and were like, well, wait a minute. You know, how can we say that we're trying to democratize design and make this an accessible product for people? And then they get to Canva, they can't actually use fonts that help them design in their language. You know, this doesn't really make sense. And it just, you know, I knew that we probably had some ways to go, but I guess I really took for granted the importance of things like font and calligraphy in markets like that. We learned through the landscaping research that the the kind of script and style of fonts really does become the design element when it comes to some Arabic speaking markets and to not have a, a good amount of not just fonts, but you know, free fonts as well for free users really 
creates a design block for these people. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just something I, you know, it goes to show you can be so insular sometimes and think that, you know, you know all about localization and it just had never dawned on me that, you know, we might as well not have photos if we don't have the, the right fonts in certain markets. <laughs> so that that was a big one. I would say another one that we're, that we're working on trying to tackle now is this approach to multilingualism. The reality is that more and more, not to sound like a cliche article on globalization, but the world is becoming more globalized, of course, and it's very common for people to be multilingual. And the way that they interact with digital products might be different from the way that they interact with other people um, day to day. So you may, in India, speak Hindi um, or Tamil or Telugu to your friends, to your family, but when you are using digital products, you might be using them in English and you're used to using them in English. And so maybe your, your English fluency is actually, you know, intermediate, but we become so used to digital tools and how they work almost that we don't read buttons anymore. I mean, I don't really read Spotify UI. I just go, I know where to look for things. I navigate it. Right. And so, but at the same mm-hmm. time, when then somebody is searching, they might be using Hindi search terms or Hinglish and nothing's going to come up, right? And we can't, well, so what are we going to do? How, how do we tag, you know, our metadata? Do we need to build a corpus of metadata that is English for all of our content? How, how do we surface the right thing to the right people at the right time? And, you know, I don't, I don't have an answer for this <laughs> as we speak. Mm-hmm. It's something that's massive. The Philippines is another great example of exactly that as well. Um, you know, um, people speak Tagalog um, or another native Filipino language. And so many people either search in taglish, they use the internet in English, everything like that. And, you know, that's just the reality. So that's what we're working on now is how to build a better, more responsive, localized version of Canva. Very cool. It sounds like you guys did an exceptional job of doing the internationalization piece so that you could then localize at scale in literally 100 plus languages. So if you were advising a new startup that was just on the cusp of starting their expansion and internationalization and localization, what what are the biggest pieces of advice or hindsight that you'd offer when it comes specifically to how to set themselves up for success? Definitely having the right TMS that allows you to do what you need to do. And again, that will vary depending on what your product is, how, you know, what you want your reach to be, how large your team is, right? And for people who may not be familiar with TMS, can you just expand and uh, define that a bit? Yes. Uh, translation management software. So essentially the, the platform that is housing all of your translation work and integrating with whatever it is that your product may be to bring your localization to life. So, you know, what, what works for one product or one team may be completely unnecessary for another team. I spoke earlier about our translation management software and how much we rely on it for project management because we're dealing with so many languages. For a, a company that maybe is only going to ever localize into 10 languages, that's less of an issue. So it's really about defining where you want to go and making sure that you're setting yourself up for success with the right technology and, and platform from the get-go partnering with the right language service providers as well, understanding is it better to have you know, a larger um, language service provider or translation agency that, again, can take a lot of that project management work, or is it better for you to be working with a more boutique agency or even just freelance translators who are more hands-on? What What is your release cycle going to look like? How often are you translating? What kind of content are you translating? Is this UI content? Is this marketing content? And, um, you know, there's so many LSPs out there. So really making sure that you find the one that's the best fit for your content. And then I would just say, you know, best practices when it comes to the actual internationalization of your code itself, looking at things like parameters, ICU standards, everything like that that just makes it so that you that your code is literally adaptable for, for any language um, and that you're nailing that up front. And I would say those are your three building blocks, really. That's, that's where I would start. Great advice. And then maybe just zooming out and coming back to you for a moment, just curious, what 
has living and working outside the U.S. In a, in a new country to you? What has that taught you? What has that taught? It has taught me as an American work-life balance. The Australians are very fond of chucking a sickie and they are very fond of kind of mentally clocking out and having going down to the pub at like 3 p.m. on a Friday, which I could never have wrapped my head around living in America, let alone Silicon Valley of all places. What was the term you said? Chuck a sickie. Chuck a sickie. Take a sick day, but you're not really sick. Chuck a sickie and go to the beach. And yeah, everybody does it from time to time. I think in tandem with that is taking vacation, taking holidays. So we get a month off standard where I think back in the U.S. it's like two weeks. And Mm -hmm. they are shocked and horrified to understand that we only get two weeks in America. And they say, well, what do you even do? How do you go anywhere? It takes you so long to get anywhere. What's the point? So really having that kind of, I think, yeah, a work-life balance and... You know, if you can't take care of yourself, you really can't take care of your work, right? And that's something that um, has been a challenge for me over the years, admittedly, but something I have come into and, and worked really hard to try to support within my team as well as just making sure that we have that work-life balance. And at the end of the day, you know, we're not curing cancer. It's it's just a, it's just another SaaS product, you know, and um, we all have families and, and friends to, to go back to as well. So making sure that we get to enjoy life as much as we can as we work really hard. Um, we all have families and, and friends to, to go back to as well. So making sure that we get to enjoy life as much as we can as we work really hard. Work hard, play hard. <laughs> I like that. Very good. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to everybody who's listening about international and, uh, internationalization and localization and how that looks at Canva. I've definitely learned a lot. And you know, congrats on doing such an amazing job of it, um, 100 languages and all the countries that you're in. That is you know, something that a lot of people will just count the, the number of countries where they have a user or two, <laughs> but actually doing the work to, to put in and to make it local and, and real in those places. That's an incredible accomplishment. So kudos to you and the team. And I really appreciate everything you, you had to share today. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks again for listening to the International Expansion Podcast. If you found this information helpful, I hope you'll subscribe and share this info with a friend or colleague. As a reminder, if you or your company is looking for guidance on your international expansion journey, from sizing and prioritizing markets to getting up to speed on local conditions, finding world-class talent, or building up your brand and revenue, please visit portofentrypartners.com and send us a note. Until next time, take care.